always interesting trying to figure out what do you say to bring a bunch of people having nice conversations, you rip them away from that and tell them to get back down. But uh, never quite know what to say to that. Good morning. This morning we, uh, we're going to be moving into some new territory. We are going to start a new section. If you have been with us this year, you know we are studying through the entire Word of God this year. And we're just moving right through it. And uh, this morning we move into some new territory. The, the wonderful thing about the Old Testament is you can really tell the history of the Old Testament in nine words. And let's go ahead and th- throw those up there so we can remember where we're at in the big picture. We've studied creation. We've looked at the patriarchs, we've looked at the exodus, we've looked at the conquest, we just finished judges, and this morning we move into the kingdom period. This is when Israel wanted a king. They asked for a king, God gave them a king. There's three, three kings that kind of played key roles and then it divided. So that's kind of where we find ourselves this morning, and I entitled this message, which is found in 1 Samuel 9 through 15, You Could Learn a Lot from a Bad Example. So that's where we're going. You could learn a lot from a bad example. Now, we're looking at King Saul, the first king. And let's get a little bio on Saul as we move into the story. The time period is about 1051 B.C. The people cried out to God for a king. Everybody else around them had a king, and they wanted to be like everybody else. So they said, we want a king like everyone else. And God said, not a good idea, but I'll give you one. And so Saul was the first king. He became king at age 30, and he ruled for about 42 years. Now, the good thing that he did is he did help Israel in terms of protecting them from the nations around them that were trying to plunder their country, predominantly the Philistines. But I'm going to say chances are you probably never heard a teaching on Saul. Raise your hand if you've heard a a Sunday morning message on Saul. Okay, look around the room. Four. Four. How many years uh, of hearing teaching on Sunday mornings are represented in this room? Four. So this just confirms my theory that Tim looks at the teaching schedule and picks the bottom of the barrel stuff, and he says, let's give that to Binkley. Yeah. Well, I don't want to teach on it. So I'm, I don't know if that's true, but I'm, I'm thinking it is. Well, we're going to talk about Saul this morning. In 1 Corinthians 10 11, it's referring to the people of the Old Testament, and it says this. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction. So in other words, as the New Testament's looking back on the Old Testament, which is filled with some good examples and some bad examples, it's saying that, that we should study this. We should learn from it. We should look at the good examples to see what we should follow, but we should also look at the bad examples to see what we should avoid. And this morning, we're going to try to learn some things from Saul's bad example. You know, foolish people never learn from their own mistakes. And so they go through life just continually making the exact same mistakes over and over and over. Smart people learn from their mistakes. And so they learn to change and adapt their their behavior to create better outcomes. But truly wise people learn from both their own mistakes and the mistakes of others. And in so doing, they save themselves from the pain and the grief that accompanies foolish choices. So this morning, what do you say? Let's be wise people and let's learn from Saul's example. 
I'm going to talk this morning about three lessons on obedience, things that we can learn from the life of a disobedient man. The first one is this. Obedience will put you in situations that will require you to act in faith instead of fear. We see this in uh, 1 Samuel 13. Let's pick up the story in verse 1. Now Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash on the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeath in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Now Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear, so all of Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots. Now that's impressive. 6,000 charioteers and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And they went up and camped at Michmash, east of Bethaven. Now when the Israelites saw their situation was critical and that the army was hard-pressed, well, they hid in caves and in thickets and in rocks and in pits and in cisterns, and some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Now Saul remained at Gilgal, and all of the troops with him were quaking in fear. And he waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. And so he said, Well, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offerings. So that's what happened. Now, what should Saul have done? Well, what he should have done is wait on Samuel to come offer the burnt offerings. In 1 Samuel 10.8, Samuel made it very clear. He told Saul, go to Gilgal, wait for me. When I come, I'm going to offer the offerings and I'm going to tell you what to do. The directions were very clear. Now Saul knew that what he was doing was wrong. Saul was not a priest. Saul was not a Levite. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. That was not their job. That was not their role. He couldn't offer burnt offerings. But he somehow decided... That he had waited long enough on God. He had waited long enough on Samuel to fix this. And so he concluded it would be a good idea if he just took things into his own hands and did what needed to be done. Have you ever done that? (laughs) Most of us have. I mean, even, even good men of God have done that. Abraham did that with Ishmael. God, you're just taking a little too long for your promise to come through. It's just been a little too long, God, for your deliverance. And so it somehow seems like maybe you just need a little bit of help. So I'm just going to take things into my hands and I'm going to help you out, God. Now, why do you think Saul did what he did? Well, we really don't know, do we? It doesn't tell us. Was it just impatience of spirit, immaturity? Was it just a lack of faith, not believing that God could give them the victory? Was it the fear of other people's opinions who were kind of looking at the situation and maybe telling them what they thought he ought to do? Well, we really don't know for sure. But we do know this. Obedience will put us in places that will require 
a faith response instead of allowing our lives to be driven by our fears. Now, in this situation, the faith response would have been to wait for Samuel, to stand up and show a little faith that God was at work here, that God was in his circumstances. He could have stood up and said, come on, guys, God has led us here and God is not going to abandon us now. Remember that the Lord Almighty is with us. So come on, guys, stand firm, be strong, be courageous, because God is going to come through today. God is going to be glorified here. Come on, guys, we can do this. But he didn't do that. No, on the other hand, he listened to his fears, and he decided that he'd wait long enough for God to work. So it was time to take things into his own hands and fix them. Let's look at how that turned out for Saul. Verse 10. Now, just as he finished making the offering, Saul arrives. Oops. (laughs) I mean, he probably hasn't even washed his hands yet from the offering, and there's Samuel. Couldn't wait 10 more minutes for God to deliver him. And Samuel went out to greet him, and Samuel says, What have you done? And Saul replied, well, when I saw that the men were scattering and when I saw that you did not come at the appointed time and when I saw the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I've not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to just go ahead and offer the burnt offering. Samuel asked a very simple question, didn't he? Saul What have you done? Samuel already knew what he had done. The question was for Saul. It was his chance to come clean. It was his chance to take responsibility for his sin. You see, there's only one biblical solution that works when we have sinned. Genuine confession and repentance. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, did Saul do that? Uh, no, he did not. When confronted, he uses rationalization and blame shifting to explain why what he did was right, at least in his own eyes. He said, it, it wasn't me, the people were scattering. It's their fault, not mine. And you did not come at the appointed time. It's your fault, not mine. And the Philistines were assembling. It's their fault, not mine. And even if you don't buy that, I didn't want to do it, but I forced myself. I had no other options, so don't blame me. Now, what are you not hearing in Saul's response here? What you are not hearing is this. Forgive me, for I have sinned. You don't hear that. The truth be known, I don't think Saul thought he had anything that even required forgiveness. Since his actions were driven by his fears instead of his faith, his disobedience made sense to him. And so he was going to stand his ground and argue his position. So when confronted, Saul does not confess his sin and take responsibility for his actions. He rationalizes and he blame shifts. Let's take a look at how that worked out for him. Verse 13. 
You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now, your kingdom will not endure. And the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. Saul was learning here a hard lesson, that disobedience has consequences. Obedience brings blessing, but disobedience, even when forgiven, can sometimes come with consequences. Bottom line is we can choose the choices we make in life, but we cannot choose the consequences of those choices. Only God does that. So the first principle is obedience will put you in situations that will require you to act in faith instead of acting out of fear. That's why in the New Testament we're told so many times to to walk by faith and not by sight. In other words, let every day be an experience an adventure in walking with God and entrusting Him to be the promise keeper that we know He is. And don't ever allow your fears to fuel disobedience in your life. Instead, act in faith and watch the amazing things an Almighty God can do through a faith-filled, obedient life. The amazing thing about obeying God is that life really does become an adventure. Because you don't know from day to day who God is going to bring across your path or what he's going to do with your simple acts of obedience. A second principle we can learn from Saul's life is there's no such thing as partial obedience. There's no such thing as partial obedience. Now, some things in life can be parsed, can be subdivided, but obeying God is just not one of those things. Saul gets a second assignment in 1 Samuel 15. Let's pick up the story in verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites, and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Tlaim. 2,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, Go away and leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them because you showed kindness to the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. So the, the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur near the eastern border of Egypt. Now, at this point, we're starting to get excited. Hey, this looks good. It looks like maybe he's got it. Maybe he finally uh, learned the lesson of chapter 13, and he's on the right path. But unfortunately, as we keep reading, we see that's not quite happened. Look at verse 8. And he took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with a sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep, and the cattle, and the fat calves, and the lambs. Well, how about everything that was good? And they were unwilling to destroy completely. Now, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. So, in other words, they destroyed the trash. And they pretty much kept everything that looked good to them. Everything that seemed valuable. But they spared the king and the best of the sheep and the oxen. 
Now, what should Saul have done here? Well, he should have obeyed God's directions and destroyed it all. What did he do? He kept all the nice, good, shiny, interesting-looking stuff. Now, why did he do this? Well, once again, we don't really know his motives. Was it greed? Was he just looked around and saw all that shiny stuff and thought, man, I'd like to have some, some nice stuff like that? Was it fear of future reprisals? Why would you keep a king alive that you've just defeated? Well, maybe because if the battle ever turns against you on another day, you know, a little quid pro quo, I kept you alive, you'll keep me alive, just a little safety. Maybe it was the fear of the opinion of the soldiers who were thinking, hey, we fought the battle, we should be able to make some money off this. We don't know for sure. But once again, we do know this. He fails to obey God's directions. And once again, Samuel has to show up to confront. In chapter 15, verse 10, we see that story picked up there. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, because he's turned away from me, and he's not carried out my instructions. And Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. And early in the morning, Samuel got up, and he went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel, and he's set up a monument for his own honor. Just a side note, it's never a good idea to set up a monument to your own honor. Seems like a good idea, always ends badly, okay? So don't go there in case that's, you know, something you're thinking about this morning. But he's turned and he's gone down to Gilgal. So, okay, this is a second opportunity. Maybe Saul's learned, right? Maybe he he got something out of that first experience. Maybe he'll do it right this time. Maybe this time he'll respond with genuine confession and repentance. Well, that would be a wonderful thought, but unfortunately that's just not what happens in this story. In fact, he responds with three different strategies in his attempt to deflect the confrontation. Strategy number one is, well, let's start with just lying, 15-13. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, Okay, then what then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the cattle I hear? So apparently the noisy livestock kind of ruined this approach right from the get-go. You know, it might have been able to sell the lie if there hadn't been all those noisy sheep in the background. So he kind of realizes, Okay, I guess lying isn't going to get me out of this. So he goes to his second strategy. And that's blame shifting. We pick that up in verse 15. Saul answered, well, the the soldiers, yeah, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. And they, underline they, spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord. Now, this is moving from blame shifting to rationalization. To, you know, the only reason we saved this stuff is so that we could sacrifice it to the Lord. So in other words, you know, I understand I did the wrong thing, but hey, I did the wrong thing for a good reason. So it's okay, right? That's called rationalization. But we totally destroyed the rest. Samuel is having none of this, verse 16, and just says, enough, okay? Just enough, Saul. Let me tell you, he says, what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. And Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission, saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. 
Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on that plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? So at this point, Saul realizes lying hasn't worked, blame shifting hasn't worked, so he's going to pull out everything he's got. He's going with strategy three now. And that's angry denial. Maybe that'll get him off the hook. Verse 20. But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and I brought back Agag, their king. Stop here. <laughs> Look at that sentence. This is where you go, Saul, are you listening to the words coming out of your mouth right now? I completely destroyed the Amalekites and I brought back? You can't bring back if you completely destroyed. This is called denial. Denial. I'm just going to pretend something that's not true. So after his denial, verse 21, he goes back to his blame shifting. And the soldiers took the sheep and the cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God. And throwing a, a side helping of rationalization. Once again, in order to sacrifice, we did the wrong thing, but we did it for a good reason. To sacrifice. So the second principle is there's really no such thing as partial obedience. Partial obedience is not obedience at all. Let's be honest and call it what it is. It's just disobedience. That's all it is. Now, what are the consequences of Saul's disobedience? Well, you pick up the story in verse 22. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. And because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Partial obedience is not obedience at all, because God is so awesome and so gracious that he is worthy of being loved with our whole heart and soul and mind, and he is worthy of our complete and wholehearted obedience. And once again, Saul has made the mistake of just not taking God seriously. Let's take a look at the third lesson we can learn from Saul's life. And that is obedience is not an option in God's will for your life. Obedience is not an option in God's will for your life. Sharon and I, we, uh, we like the outdoors. We're campers and uh, we've, we've done a lot of tent camping. We've done van, tent van camping. And we've decided uh, we're going to kick it up a notch and we're going to I get, well, some of our friends have one of these little pull-behind camping trailer things. But my Honda Accord doesn't pull very much. So I realized I've, I've got to go to a little beefier vehicle here if I want to be able to pull one of those guys around. So I was, you know, talking to a lot of my friends who do this. And, and just, you know, you can, you can get a truck. But when you go to get a truck, there's a lot more to it than that, isn't there? There's, there's about a thousand different options. You can get this package or that package. And I'm saying, okay, if we're wanting to do this with it, you know, which options do you want to get on there? You don't want to get it. And then six months later, say, wow, I wish I'd got this, you know. So I was trying to just get some information. What options do you want to put on that to do what we want to do with it? If you look for cars, you, you know that you can get a car, but you can get it with a hundred different kinds of options on that. So you got to choose your options. And I think, although that kind of is maybe is important with vehicles, Sometimes we mistakenly think that obedience is an option in being a disciple of Christ. I think sometimes we mistakenly think like this. Well, 
I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, but see, now I can kind of pick and choose the situations where I want to obey God and the others where, well, I just kind of want to do what I want to do. And in the end, it won't make any difference because everything is going to kind of turn out the same way. I think we think like that sometimes. The problem with that is that is just not true. It's not true. Saul had the opportunity here to be a courageous, godly king and leader. Saul could have been another one of those great examples of the Old Testament. He could have been up there with an Abraham, a Joseph, a Moses, a Joshua, a Samuel. But he just never became that man. Why not? Well, because it seemed like he thought obeying God was optional. Under the category of way too little, way too late, Saul finally decides that since lying hasn't worked, since blame shifting hasn't worked, since denial hasn't worked, since getting angry hasn't worked, since all else has failed, he's going to pull out his last resort, some words of confession. At this point, he's just hoping that maybe if he says the right combination of magic words, it will change the consequences of his disobedient choices. Pick up the story in verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, okay, then, well, I've sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. You know, I was afraid of the men, and that seems to be a theme in Saul's life. He just seemed to pay way too much attention to other people's opinions and way too little attention to what God thought. I was afraid of the men, so I gave in to them. And, but, you know, now I beg you, forgive my sin and come on back with me and, and let's worship the Lord together. Verse 26, but Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. This is a really sad moment. Okay, this is a heartbreaker here. This could have been a a wonderful time for the nation of Israel. Samuel would have been the spiritual leader reviving the people. Saul could have been the great military leader protecting them from the Philistines. It could have just been a wonderful time of blessing for Israel and the people of God. But that just didn't happen. Didn't happen. Verse 35. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go see Saul again. Though Samuel mourned for him, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. You see, the point here is, life does not turn out the same either way. Obedience is not an option in God's will for your life, because a life of obedience is a life that is filled with love and joy and purpose and peace and kindness and eternal significance, and a life of disobedience will take you to a very different place. Saul stayed in power for a number of years after this event, but his life, well, it was quite honestly a miserable one. His days were filled with a jealous, raging obsession to chase down the next guy, King David, to chase David around the countryside, attempting to kill him in hopes that somehow he could hold on to his power and to his position. 
Saul was the king, and as king, he had tasted power, and he had tasted position. And that is a drug far more addictive than any opioid available on the market today. And like many before and since, he had become addicted to it. And at this point, he was willing to do anything to hang on to it, even if it meant murder. You know, if, if God uses you, if he places you in a position of power or authority in your, maybe your work environment, your community, your church, your state, your country, then, then that's great. That is wonderful. Use that opportunity to serve God wholeheartedly in that assignment. But realize that that's only temporary. And at some point, God will put someone else there. And when that time comes, don't be like Saul. Fighting and striving to hang on to the position that that God now has given to someone else. A better example here would be the example of Christ in Philippians 2, who in humility gave up position, who in humility gave up power to serve. Had Saul been a man of greater integrity than he was, he could have accepted that his time as king was over and he could have helped this new King David get started off right. He could have sat down and said, King David, I want you to have a great, a great run here and, and don't make the mistakes I've made. You know? And uh, he could have been a, a mentor, but instead he ran around the country trying to murder David in a vain effort to defeat the very plan of God. Saul's not our example to follow here. But we can learn some important lessons from his life. One of which is obedience is not an option in God's will for your life. The path of obedience and the path of disobedience take you to two very different places. And experiencing God's purpose for your life can only be found when you choose the path of obedience. So we could learn a lot from a bad example. We can learn that obedience will put us in situations that will require us to act in faith instead of fear. And when you're in that situation, when you're at the crossroads, and the fears are real, I understand that. The fears are real and they're present and they're attacking your mind and they're attacking your heart and they're trying to get you to act a certain way, but just as real as your faith. The promises of God are just as real. And when you stand at that crossroads, choose faith. Don't listen to fear, because it'll take you to a bad place. There's no such thing as partial obedience, so offer the Lord your whole heart, mind, and soul. Offer complete obedience, and then stand back and just see the amazing things that a great God can do to accomplish His purposes through the simple acts of obedience of His people. And thirdly, obedience is not an option in God's will for your life. Experiencing and fulfilling God's will in your life requires A heart of obedience. One thing Saul just never seemed to understand is that obedience is not really about duty. It's not about doing what you're supposed to do. It's not about doing what you ought to do. But the essence of obedience is that it is about love. Jesus said in John 14, 23, Anyone who loves me will obey my teachings. And my Father will love them, and we will come to them, and we will make our home with them. You see, in the context of a loving relationship, obedience is just the obvious, natural response. Saul's life is over. He's done. 
And at the end of our lives, we leave one of two things to our children and our grandchildren and for the future generations who might think about us. We leave either a good example to follow or a bad example to avoid. Foolish people never learn from their own mistakes. They spend life repeating them. Smart people learn from their own mistakes and make some better choices. But wise people learn from both their own mistakes and the mistakes of others, and in so doing, save themselves the pain and grief of foolish choices and enjoy the blessing of obedience and of walking in fellowship with their loving Heavenly Father. Let's pray, shall we?